Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, Voices of Earth by Archibald Lampman. We're not 100% sure when this was published, but it was probably uh, written before Archibald Lampman died in 1899. It was published uh, in the version we're reading in 1900 in a book called The Poems of Archibald Lampman. I think we've done at least one other poem on this podcast uh, of his, and we've done uh, one on the SFF Audio podcast, a longer one. I, again... I really like reading his stuff because it is super dense and subject to multiple interpretation. And it's quite beautiful, too. I happen to have a reading here that I'm going to play for the podcast audience and for us of uh, Voices of Earth, read by Mr. Jim Moon. And uh, after that, I think we should probably tackle it again. Uh, noting the beautiful imagery and the many meanings each line and each sentence has. Here we go. Voices of Earth by Archibald Lampman We have not heard the music of the spheres, the song of star to star. But there are sounds more deep than human joy and human tears that nature uses in her common rounds. The fall of streams, the cry of winds that strain the oak, the roaring of the sea's surge, might of thunder breaking afar off, or rain that falls by minutes in the summer night. These are the voices of Earth's secret soul uttering the mystery from which she came. To him who hears them, grief beyond control, or joy inscrutable, without a name, wakes in his heart, thoughts bedded there, empearled, before the birth and making of the world. I'm still not 100% sure what this poem is about, but I I do like, I like reading it myself. I like hearing it read. And I I like thinking about how each line is almost a story. And then each sentence is a story. And then, of course, the whole poem is a story. And then we look back at the title and, and it gives another interpretation or at least another way of looking at it. It's pretty impressive. I I like the poem. I like it in a context you haven't raised yet, which I don't want to raise yet either, because I'm very attracted to your thesis <clears throat> that each line is a story, each sentence is a story, and the poem as a whole is a story. Please. Tell me some of those stories. Okay. Um, so I, I've read this poem a, a few times over the last, I don't know, six months or so. Um, last night I was, I was, uh, I helped me, I make my students help me do my homework. Um, so we were, um, 
we were reading this, looking at the vocabulary, and and then one of the techniques I do is I ask what what vocab words mean, you know, and then anything anybody doesn't know, we talk about synonyms for it, and then we do uh, line by line translation. I say, I'm stupid, I don't understand. Please explain to this this sentence to me in other words, so I can understand it. So. Um, and I noticed as when you do that, it, it, it's really rich. So let me just do that for us in the first line here. We have not heard the music of the spheres. I know the phrase music of the spheres uh, from sort of, I don't know, 17th century kind of theories about, about the sun-centered universe. The Earth-centered universe, you know, sort of the idea that there's all these objects moving in the sky and they have rhythms. But of course, if you take that idea, of course you can't hear the music of the spheres because there's a vacuum between us. So I'm immediately looking into outer space. The song of star to star, but there are sounds. Well, I see the song of star to star as the music of the spheres those are spheres as well stars but there are sounds oh there are sounds between the stars interesting is he talking about light well if we continue more deep than human joy and human tears oh he's not talking about he's not talking about the sound of the stars or is he and then the next line that nature capital n uses in her common rounds and I, I always like to point out when things are capitalized because it's turning things into gods, right? The nature uses in her common rounds. Now, common rounds uh, starts me thinking not just of orbits and years, but also of seasons. And then we're paid off in the next line. The fall of streams, the cry of winds that strain, the oak the roaring of the sea surge so the fall of streams well fall another word for that is autumn my, one of my students caught that i think the cry of winds that strain i was thinking oh this is not just winds in in the trees winds in the air but also stellar winds the oak well that's not in outer space the roaring of the sea surge and then we're getting these sense of strength from the oak, the roaring of the sea surge. There's a kind of anger, maybe. But then the next word in the same line, might. And if you read it the right way, or one way, the oak, the roaring of the sea surge, might, as in strength. But then looking at the comma, comma, might of thunder, breaking afar off or rain that falls by minutes in the summer night. So that whole thing that I just read there is one sentence. It's very hard to encompass it and take it all in unless you're breaking it down bit by bit. And then if you do do that, then you sort of lose track of what the whole sentence meaning is. So each part of the poem seems to have its own direction and then bringing it back together 
it has a much more powerful uh, and maybe larger image and larger meaning. We have not heard the music of the spheres, the song of star to star, but there are sounds more deep than human joy and human tears that nature uses in her common rounds. The fall of streams, the cry of winds that strain, the oak, the roaring of the sea surge might, of thunder breaking afar off, or rain that falls by minutes in the summer's night. So to me, this is saying we've got the outer space, the movements of spheres in the sky. We've got sounds that we do hear. Those are the sounds of humans crying or joying, if that's a verb. And then we have the sounds of nature on the earth, the fall of streams, the cry of winds, the roaring of the sea surge, the might of thunder. And it's all in time. And of course, music and time go together and they have rhythm that falls by minutes in the summer night. So this all could be just one moment in in a summer evening. But it's the sense of majesty of the universe as well. And the sense of the oldness of the earth. It's a very dense sentence. That's what I'm I talking agree. about. Okay, I guess I didn't understand what you meant by story, but now now I do, I think. Um I have a slightly different reading of it. Please. The phrase music of the spheres is Pythagorean. Um, It goes all the way back to the ancient philosophers of Greece. And in, in, in that time, the understanding was that music and mathematics, as you said yourself just now, are siblings. In the Pythagorean view of the universe, what we would now call, I guess, the uh, Ptolemaic view, we have circles and circles and circles, um, the earth at the center and so on. And um, in that view, um, there is a perfection in the music of the spheres, because as we look at each of the successive spheres, We in the sublunary realm, we um, on the earth, we who are beneath the lowest of the celestial spheres, the the moon riding on that one, um, we are corrupt. It's a platonic view of, of the universe. We are not perfect. We are imperfect. But in the platonic universe, the movement of the moon is perfect. The movement of the stars is perfect. We can map them out mathematically. The movement of the wandering stars, the planetes, astares, uh, Mars, and so on, that would, uh, visible stars, are perfect. We can, we can follow those. And that makes a music of the spheres. This is, in the Platonic view, this Pythagorean connection between mathematical, we'd call say it scientific prediction, and music uh, gives us the platonic notion, which Pythagoras accepted, um, of there being a music that we cannot hear because we are the corrupt. Uh, I don't mean evil. I mean, we're just, we're imperfect. We are here in the sublunary world. 
In the sublunary world, we have nature, nature with a capital N. Mm -hmm. For platonic thinkers, that nature does not include the universe. Nature is sublunary nature, and it is full of all sorts of imperfect things. The fall of streams, the cry of winds that strain, the oak, the roaring of the sea's surge, might of thunder breaking afar off or rain that falls by minutes in the summer night, right? This is all beneath the sphere of the moon. As I read this poem, it gives us in the first two lines, the statement of what we poor imperfect souls now having projected down into the earth, having been born, this is platonic. Uh, we can't hear the music of the spheres. We know it's out there because we can observe it and we understand the mathematics behind it. We can't hear the music of the spheres that the stars sing to each other but there is, there are sounds that we could hear. And those sounds are more deep than human joy, happiness, and human tears, unhappiness. Nature uses her common rounds, that is the ordinary seasons, as you say, the year. So we get the fall, we get the, the different versions of weather, we get time passing, we get the summer night. And if we could really listen to these voices, the voices of Earth, not the voices from the moon on out, if we could hear these voices of Earth, which is the title of the poem, mm -hmm. then we would be able to, to, to get something even deeper than merely human joy and human tears, because we would be in accord with all of the imperfections of sublunary creation which is marvelous, and decay. So there are those voices of Earth's secret soul, which we've never been able to see. Pythagoras doesn't map, you know, what's below the surface, uttering the mystery from which she came. To him who hears them, grief beyond control, or joy inscrutable without a name, wakes in his heart thoughts bedded there, impearled before the birth and making of the world. And that word before, I also think, Jesse, like some of the other words you've pointed us to, can be read in two ways. It can be that something wakes in the heart of someone attuned to the voices of the earth as if he is standing before the concept of the birth and mm -hmm. making of the world, which is what happens as Earth goes on in its common time, right? The seasons happen. There is summer, there is fall, but then there is after winter, another spring. Contemplating this birth and making of the world, we have these thoughts bedded there, thinking in terms of procreation. Mm -hmm. But also we can think that these things came even before earlier in time the birth and the making of the world. That is, nature itself was a spirit, a sublunary spirit that existed even before we had a world. So the, the poem offers us two lines at the beginning pointing to a perfect platonic world, which has a kind of impeccable sound to it, mm 
and two lines at the end that come out of um, procreation, bedded there, right? Come out of procreation that is imperfect, but overpowering. And in between those bookends, that contrast between the perfect and the imperfect, we have description of the sounds and feelings that constitute the voices of the earth, because they themselves have no name. They themselves are older than we, and therefore they antedate language. Lampman is trying to capture in language the gorgeousness, at least the emotional gorgeousness, rather than the mathematical gorgeousness, the emotional gorgeousness, be it joy or sorrow, that we who listen attentively to the nature around us can feel. Mm-hmm. I, I like the you use the word bookends because um, I I also like to see how he he just seems to be a master of, of poetic construction. Um, if you if you listen to the story that he tells in his poem, you might not notice it as much as if you read it on the page. I want to point that the first two lines. We have not heard the music of the spheres, the song of star to star, but there are sounds, are a kind of bookend. And the last two lines, wakes in his heart thoughts bedded there, impearled before the birth and making of the world. But right after those bookends are the emotions, and here they are. So here's the lines three and four. More deep than human joy and human tears that nature uses in her common rounds. So we've got joy and tears that nature uses. Then the last two uh, lines before the bookend, final two lines, that is the third and fourth before, uh, three and four from the end, are to him who hears them grief beyond control. So we've got those tears. Or joy, the exact same word, inscrutable without name. So... We start with an emotion, right? It's almost like somebody, I, I picture Lampman, who obviously was a nature lover, standing uh, uh, near a cabin on a summer night, looking out at the stars. Maybe he's talking to somebody. Maybe he's, he's just thinking to himself or writing it down. And he sees those stars and he says, well, we can't hear what's going on up there. But I can hear these things, the sea surge, the oak straining in the wind, the fall of the stream, and it gives me human joy and human tears. Then he goes on to explain, well, there are sounds greater than those human joy and human tears. And if you listen to those secret sounds of the earth, imperled before... (laughs) The birth of the world, bedded there, to to those people, grief beyond control, <laughs> or joy inscrutable, without a name. It's almost as if he's already emotional, and then he says, "Where's this emotion coming from?" And this story, this poem, the voices of the earth are what mo- are moving him. I I just think it's brilliant. It's a it's a brilliant word image. I 
I agree. I, I think it's so hard to give words to things that you say are wordless. One says is wordless. Mm. Uh, Lampman, um, it, this is my, my ignorance. I, I was not aware of Lampman before you first told me about him. And I, I now know that he is <clears throat> described, uh, he's considered part of the Confederation poets, um, which is something that never figured in my own education. So, you know, bad for me. Um, and I know that critics have referred to him as the Canadian Keats. So I tried to think about what that might mean. I started reviewing in my own mind some of Keats' more famous poems. And it seems to me that there is one that makes a marvelous comparison, but also crucial contrast with Voices of Earth. Mm. Uh, Keats, one of Keats' by far most famous poems is called Bright Star. Okay, so this one begins, I mean, Lampman begins, we have not heard the music of the spheres, the song of star to star, right? But down below we have human joys and tears and the earth making its own noise, voices, which some of us hear, but some of us do not. There's Keats, Bright Star, another sonnet, another sonnet that changes its meaning in the last two lines, so sonnets so often do. Bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art, not in lone splendor hung aloft the night and watching with eternal lids apart, like nature's patient, sleepless eremite, the moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores, or gazing on the new soft-fallen mask of snow upon the mountains and the moors. No, yet still steadfast, still unchangeable, pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast to feel forever its soft fall and swell, awake forever in a sweet unrest, still, still to hear her tender taken breath, and so live ever, or else swoon to death. Mm. Now, this is a poem that has occasioned a lot of criticism, and there's much to be said about it. But we're talking about Lampman today. So uh, let me just say quite simply, what Keats does here is address the star and say, I wish I had your qualities, right? Mm -hmm. But not the ones of being alone. I want to be the ones that, you know, that are down here, Right. And if I can't be the ones down here where I can be steadfast in some human way, if I can't be that to my lover, which would allow me to live forever, which would be a kind of perfection. Then I would swoon to death. And remember that uh, swooning and the little death are both euphemisms in the Victorian period for orgasm, sexual activity. So what Keats is doing is contemplating the stars, comparing them with the difference uh, between the messy, sexy earth, saying that he wants some quality of the stars because one way or another he wants to be involved with love. The, the, the contrast here, the bookends here, as it were, are between the star alone and the star of his love, this ripening breast, the, the woman um, on earth. It is a radical connection with an other 
that he seeks, another human being. Lampman is called the Canadian Keats, but I can't help but notice that while Lampman gives us a radical connection, he also gives us a radical contrast between the music of the spheres and the sublunary nature. And while nothing is said about it, what he has done is moved away from Bright Star to give us a poem that does not have another human being in it. Mm-hmm. It has we. It has we, but I don't think it's, it's let us come now, yes, you and I. I agree. Right? It's, right, it's it's humanity. And he's talking about humans on on Earth, and we humans should listen to those voices. He is speaking for, and I use this word loosely, mankind. Mm. He is speaking for humanity. Mm. Um, the sense of sexuality that underlies Keats, the fecundity of nature mm-hmm. in Keats is absent. Instead, simply the sublime contemplation of the power, both terrifying and glorifying of mm-hmm. nature is in Lampman. Yeah. So maybe he is a Canadian Keats, but if so, he is still a, a, a nature poet with a very different sense. Keats is a nature poet in that he uses nature imagery. Lampman is a nature poet in that he exalts nature. Yeah. Uh, I get a, I get the sense that he's much more cosmic than a normal romantic poets. Um, it's it's less about the effect on on um, we humans than it is the effect on the on the human uh, experience of nature, right? It's not that it's nice to go for a walk. It's it's profound to go for a walk. The the power of really hearing nature's power is is fundamentally moving. Where that bright star I note is one massive sentence. This is two massive sentences, but <laughs> they are they are uh, about different relationships. So he's he is almost despairing at the at what's actually going on beyond the moon, as you put it, and and yet there's plenty of emotional work to be done in contemplating the creation of the earth and and the, i note also that the wor- the word world could mean could mean um the earth or it could be the universe but i also just like to think about how uh, i i like that you caught that before uh the double meaning there he's very very good at this um picking the exact right word so that it allows you to to image it I, I i've got a little drawing i did when i was reading this uh last few lines and i've got a picture of a bed inside of a heart and then there are thoughts there like a little pearl and, and uh, it's just a beautiful image um waking thoughts impearled before the birth and making of the world notice it's not just the making of the world it's also the birth it's yes. It's it, he didn't do that by accident. This is so cons- so carefully constructed. Maybe it was all natural and he dashed it off in a minute. But this would take me years to be this good. I mean, I, I'm great. I'm I'm happy when I get a nice extended metaphor going. Um, 
here he doesn't just got one extended metaphor that he's using because he allows you to have these multivalent approaches and and even the word world i can spell it a different way w h i r l you know and it it's that spinning that we're getting back right back at the beginning the music of the spheres is the movement the orbit i like that it's beautiful he's like- so clever and I would like I want to, to read su- way more of his stuff. <laughs> I'd like to suggest something else. The the word world, I don't know whether or not Lampman knew its etymology, but it comes from old English werald, where meaning man, as in werewolf, mm. um, and ald meaning era, as in auld lang syne, the era long since. Um, werald means the age of man. And while nowadays... We may think of the default meaning of world as terra. Um, in fact, the older meaning of world is the age of man. It's a social meaning. And we still use that when we say in the world of business today or in the world of politics today, mm. um, or I'm going to I'm going to get you involved in a world of hurt. World, in fact, is a social, a social concept mm-hmm. first, secondarily an astronomical one. So at the end of this poem, when the speaker says that he who hears the voices of earth wakes in his heart thoughts bedded there, imperiled before the birth and making of the world, in addition to the whirling of a terrestrial sphere in the astronomical universe, this also can refer to the the matrix, the world is the matrix. It is a she, right? It's mm-hmm. Earth. It's her soul. It's the matrix out of which all human society and all human life arises. You know, when we realize our indebtedness to her, to Mother Earth, then we should, in fact, have thoughts come out of our heart. Uh, and it's curious. In contemplation. It's yeah. curious when you point it out that way. I, I can see. Uh, Keats is he's got he's got him I assume it's Keats telling this story and then he's got his lover's breast here there's a male and a female as well the the um, in his heart it wakes but of course birth and the her um, earth's secret soul uttering the mystery from which she came and I note also that uh, you pointed out to me not too long ago that mystery has multiple meanings. That multivalent is the really the only way of of capturing what he's doing because bivalent isn't enough. It does have the male and female human story in here. It's just less less prominent than in Bright Star. Yes, but in Bright Star, of course, the male and female are of the same order of being. Mm-hmm. In Lampman, they are not. It's true. Yeah. So in some sense, he is less sexy. Mm. Lampman is less sexy. But on the other hand, he is, in some sense, intellectually grander. That's why, when you read his poems, there is always more to say. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.